Today we're looking at verses 9 through 20 as we continue a series of sermons on the book of Romans. And Paul sort of in this section finally tips his hand to show us what he's been doing since chapter 1 and verse 18. From chapter 1 to uh, verse 18 to the end of uh, chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul has been focusing on sin and the fallenness of mankind. And that's never a popular subject, but it's one obviously that we need to be aware of. Because one day we will stand, all of us, before the Lord. And so with that understood, hear now the word of the Lord as we look in chapter 3. And it should be also on the screen as well if you uh, don't have a Bible. Hear now the word of the Lord. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all... Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that we will have our hearts illumined and our hearts softened and made ready to receive the seed of your word, which is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and is a critic of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. How we pray that the Holy Spirit, that is the one who breathed out your word, will now open our eyes to see the wonder of your word and of Jesus our Lord. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Paul has been dismantling any grounds that we think we have for being right in God's sight in and of ourselves. It makes uncomfortable reading both for the person who is irreligious, has no religious commitments at all, as well as 
professing Christians because this section, Paul moves relentlessly toward the conclusion that no one will be declared right in God's sight by observing the law. In many respects, this is Paul sort of in a, an analytical and um, epistolatory way retelling the story that Jesus told of the lost sons, the parable of the father and the lost sons often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. In verses one, chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, which we've already looked at, Paul gives us, as it were, a beautiful picture. It's not beautiful. It's ugly. It's gross. But he gives us a picture of the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son. The prodigal son was sick of living at home, did not want to submit to his father any longer, demanded that the father give him his inheritance, which was as much as saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance, which would have been one-third. The older son got two-thirds. He would have gotten one-third. The father gave it to him. He left home, and for him, he lived in riotous living, which we would say today, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was more than that. He said, I want to get away from my father. I want to get away from your clammy hands, and I want to swing, and that's what I'm going to do. And he did immoral things. And he found himself that when he ran out of money, he lost his friends, which always happens. If you're living that kind of lifestyle, you know that. He ended up hungry. He ended up in a pigsty. Here's a kosher Jewish boy living in a pigsty, eating what? pigs eat and the Bible says he came to himself and he went home but as he was walking he was trying to figure out the whole time a way to negotiate a settlement with his offended father who he had shamed before the whole world and so this is what he does he thinks to himself I, I can ask him if I can be a hired servant since I'm no longer a son and maybe he'll take me in and have mercy on me meanwhile the father every day, walks out, looks to the horizon, hoping one day he would see the figure of that son approaching. And that day happened. And that father did something that no ancient Near Eastern patriarch would ever do. He yanked up his, it's called girding your loins in the Bible, which means he pulled up his robe so he could run. And that father ran to that son nobody ever did that especially a son that had shamed him and he runs to that son and the son starts telling him his little negotiated transactional relationship that he wanted and the father ignored it and he kissed him and he fell on his neck which means he hugged him and he embraced him and he said oh my son you were dead but now you're alive bring forth the best robe give him shoes kill the fatted calf my son who is dead is now alive meanwhile back at the ranch or back at the home there was the elder brother and the elder brother starts in chapter 2 of Romans <laughs> and he goes to the end of uh, chapter 3, verse 9. The elder brother was the Jewish son who was the good son. He stayed home with the father. He did everything the father expected. He uh, went through all the motions of being a good son. 
He was faithful to the task he was called to. If you and I knew him, we would say he's a good, responsible, conservative, upright, moral human being. But when he saw what was going on, by the way, one of the reasons he was so upset is that the two-thirds of his inheritance was paying for the party for the eldest, I mean, younger son. And so he sees his father, and they're celebrating, and his father notices he's not there, the elder brother, the good son. He goes out to him. He says, my son, why are you not celebrating that your brother who was dead is now alive? And his son looked at him and said, Father, I have been here. Putting, putting a little editorial word here. I've always done what you've asked. I've done everything you've ever demanded of me, and you have never even given me a goat. And here's the son of yours who has shamed you, humiliated, and embarrassed you. And you're throwing him a party. Now listen, Jesus told this story to the Pharisees. The elder brother represented the moral, conservative, Bible-believing, religious person at home who was bitter, who did not understand God's grace at all. This is what Paul has done, taking that story from Jesus and developing it out to show us that all are under sin, all of us. And he's going to, as I said earlier, just tear apart any ground that we think we may have to stand before God on to recommend us to his favor and to his love and to his acceptance, and he's literally going to destroy it. Why? To show us that we're lost without Christ. We're lost, and we need to be found. Now, let's jump right in and look at the passage more closely and see what we can understand. As you notice, it says part one at the top. So if you get upset because I didn't say something in this message you think I ought to have said, I might say it next week. So that's why you have part two. But here's part one. Paul says, all are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. Thus, to be under sin and to be unrighteousness or unrighteous is the same thing. If we remember that righteous is a positional term, we will realize that it means that one is blameless with respect to God and others. We have wronged God and others. We owe them. We are in their debt. They have a claim against us. And to be under sin is this legal position. We are under debt to God. Sin is a debt we incur. Somebody's got to pay the debt. You and I cannot pay it. It is astronomical. But to be under sin is to be indebted to God. Dr. Lloyd-Jones said it this way. The Bible does not say, is he a good man? The Bible does not ask how much good he does or whether he is respectable. It does not ask these questions at all. It says every man is either under sin or under grace. In other words, we must always think of ourselves not primarily in terms of addictions or any particular things that are true about us. It is our whole condition that matters. Let me use an analogy here. If you visit a foreign country, the first thing they would want to know about you is not the color of your hair, 
or your eyes or your bank balance or whether you're a nice person, the first thing they would want to know is what country you belong to so they would ask for your passport. Are you a citizen of this country or are you a, a foreigner and what is your purpose in being here? They would want to know which realm you belong to. Paul's very amazing statement is that Jews and Gentiles, religious people who are moral and conservative, and Gentiles who are pagan and immoral and anything but conservative, they're relativist, Paul is saying that all are under sin. There's no advantage before God to being a religious person. Now you've got to stay with me. Got to follow Paul's logic carefully here. Paul's very amazing statement is that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. In chapter 1, we saw the Gentiles Paul was referring to lived lives of tremendous technicolor immorality and debauchery, while the Jews, though inconsistent, were conscientious and moral. Yet Paul says they are alike under sin. Now, this cannot mean that every person is as sinful as every other person. It must mean that our legal condition before God is all the same. We are all lost, and there are no degrees of lostness. Here's a couple of illustrations to get my point across at this point in the message. Imagine two people are killed. One person is poisoned by a small spider bite, and he dies in his sleep. The other person is mauled by a lion and terribly disfigured. Can we say that one person is more dead than the other? Are there degrees of being dead? No. They're both dead. One's pretty dead, the other's ugly dead, but they're both dead. Or let's look at it this way. Suppose I drive you to the Grand Canyon and I say, I want you to broad jump across the Grand Canyon. And one of the people in the car with me is a person who's an Olympic athlete who specializes in broad jump. And let's say that a guy like me decides to run off the edge of the canyon to try to broad jump the canyon. I'm not going to get very far, am I? Even in my younger days, I wouldn't get very far. I would what? I would fall. Let's say that the second guy is a professional football player. He's in pretty good shape. He jumps, he gets twice as far as I do. The third guy, who's an Olympic athlete his entire life, he's been planning to do this, he jumps, but what? Nobody gets across the canyon, right? That's what Paul is saying in this text. And that is the condition of every single person. It's in the same way the religious person may trust in his morality and the pagan in his sensuality, but neither are trusting God for their salvation. The religious person may be notably more moral, but neither they nor the pagans come close to a righteous heart. They are all lost. They are all condemned to perish. Perishing is perishing. Condemnation is condemnation. Everyone is equally under sin. That's your address. That's your citizenship. We are all born into this world as sinful and we're under condemnation and we are under sin before the face of God. And there's no way you can extricate yourself out of this citizenship. 
This is who you are. This is where you are. Now, is Paul just being Paul? Is he just being harsh? Paul then in verses 10 through 18 gives us a long list of all of the effects of sin on us. First he says there's a radical egalitarianism regarding sin, all of us, every single one of us, me included. The most sanctified, glorious human being you think you've ever known or seen, all are under sin. All are under sin before the face of God. First, Paul talks about our legal standing. There is no one legally righteous, and no one's deeds can change that. We are guilty and condemned. That's what verse 10 says. Even our best deeds and performances are completely useless in improving our standard before God. No one does good. We become worthless. The deeds are not truly good, but are self-serving ways to avoid God's salvation. And so, though we may virtue signal, because we think we are good people who've done something good before the face of God, there's no one who is right with him. No one. And in case you're that lone exception on the back row and you want to raise your hand, Paul says what? No, not one. Now let this soak. Secondly, sin affects our minds. Because our core nature is corrupted by sin, we don't understand God's truth. Sin clouds, it creates darkness in our heart and thinking. And when it comes to spiritual issues, Ephesians 4, 18 says, they are darkened in their understanding because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Notice the ignorance does not cause the hardness of heart, but rather the hardness of heart, sin, causes the ignorance, which leads to a lack of understanding. Sin, our self-centeredness, leads us to filter out a lot of reality in the form of denial. We don't want to see the holiness and sovereignty of God or the sinfulness and weaknessness and flawedness of ourselves. As a result of this, we are blind to many truths and thus our thinking for a lack of data does not work. Sin messes with your mind. Causes you to think in ways that are inconsistent with reality. Then he talks about motives. He says, no one seeks for God. None of us want to find him at all. Rather, we are running and hiding from him. All we do, even in our religion and in our morality, for more on no one seeks for God, we'll consider that later. Our wills, verse 12a, they have turned away. There's no one who does good. Very much like Isaiah 53, 6, which says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. Autonomy is our lifestyle. This is a statement about our willfulness, our self-will. In other words, sin can be defined as our demand for self-determination, the right to choose my own path. You hear it in the prodigal. I want my inheritance. I want it now. And I want to live like I want to live. I want to do what I want to do. And I don't want anybody messing with me about that. Now, we're usually maybe not that overt about it. We know how to hide it better. But cut to the quick and to the core, that's where we are. Our wills, verse 12a, they have turned away. 
Our tongues, verses 13 and 14, their throats are open grays. This is about how sin affects the tongue. Our speech, the words we use, the image here is a grave with rotting bodies in it. Sinful words are signs of and causes of decay. The two areas of sinful words mentioned are deceit or dishonesty and bitterness or malice. We use our tongues to deceive people or to harm people. Our own relationships, verses 15 through 17, he says, they shed blood, people they do not know. This is how sin affects relationships. In our relationships, we are after each other's blood. We are self-centered. So we fight with those who get in our way. And as a result, there's never peace when we look at human history, how could we argue with this analysis? And in verse 18, our relationship to God, there is no fear of God. And generally speaking, that's the cure, is the fear of the Lord. But we're not ready to get to the cure yet. We've got to uncover the disease a little bit more. Paul says, no one seeks for God. What does he mean when he says, no one seeks for God? How does this statement square with all the people who seem to be searching for God? Glad you asked. Seeking after God should be understood in its obvious meaning. It is a desire from the heart to know the true and living God and to find and enjoy him. This would include a desire to worship God and to appreciate and rejoice in him just for who he is in himself. So to seek God is like the Westminster Shorter Catechism question one. What is the chief purpose of man? The chief worship pur uh, purpose of man is to glorify God and endure him forever. No, glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? Enjoy him. Some will say at this point, I never liked Paul anyway. I think he's gone too far. I know many people in this world today who are not Christians at all, who never darken the door of a church, but many of them pray, and many of them are searching profoundly. And then there are people in other religions. Surely Paul has overdone it. But Paul does not say that no one seeks for spiritual blessings or no one seeks God for answer to prayers or no one seeks for spiritual power and experience and peace. He does that, not say that because many, many people do that. But what Paul is saying is that no one in his or her natural self and ability wants to find God. They might have an intellectual interest in the possibility of God or a philosophical conviction uh, that there is a God. That is not a real passion to meet God face to face. That's not seeking. In fact, intellectual interest can be a way of avoiding meeting the real God. They might have a problem in their lives and realize that what they need is forgiveness to deal with their guilt or spiritual peace to deal with their anxiety or power or wisdom to deal with a particular problem or even mystical experiences to deal with their inner emptiness. How postmodern, huh? But it's not the same thing as truly seeking and coming face to face with the holy, living, sovereign God. 
It is seeking for what God can give us, but not for him himself. Most of us want to use God and others to enable us to live a better life. And so we're not interested in seeking God for who he is in himself. I'm interested in seeking God so I can figure out a way to manipulate him to help me be what I've always wanted to be. And that's why I want him. That is not seeking God in the biblical sense of the word. So the spiritual seeking sometimes is actually a way to get away from God. Flannery O'Connor writes about this all the time, that most religious people are just finding ways to avoid Jesus. And some of them are baptized ways to avoid Jesus. Luther said, no one seeks after God. That's true both of those that do not at all care for God and of those who imagine themselves to seek after God. They do not seek after God as he desires to be sought and found. The inward desire for seeking God after God is true love of God. Jonathan Edwards put it another way. Jonathan Edwards said this. He said in the religious affections that people do not seek the things that God can give but only a heart regenerated and purified by the Spirit can seek God for who he is in himself. In other words, the natural, unaided human nature might seek God's gift, but never God. Sin is self-centeredness, and thus this self-centeredness is connected to all we do. In true seeking of God, something that can only be done with the Spirit's help, a person appreciates God for who he is in himself. A person loves and appreciates then the glory of God and the Word of God, and not only when he or she directly benefits from them. In fact, Edwards said that a person without the Holy Spirit who is still motivated by self-centeredness can be attracted to the power and love of God but because you may need them. But these seekers are attracted to God's holiness and glory because they seek God for who he is in himself. Seeking God is much more than active asking God for things. The moment you realize the content to the word seek, you begin to see the apostle's statement is quite right. Prayers do not mean that we are seeking God. Seeking God means you're trying to find God and to get into his presence. To seek God means to desire God above everything and everybody. To seek his glory, to be anxious to promote his glory. To seek God in the biblical sense means that God is the center of our being, of our thinking, of our willing, of our wanting, of our desires. Paul says no one seeks God on their own. No one. Well, that's a mess, isn't it? It's a real mess. Paul is right. What does it mean about anyone who is truly seeking uh, to come into God's presence? It means that anyone who is truly seeking God has been sought by God. We seek him as a result of his seeking us, not the cause. 
If one is capable of seeking God, then any human being seeking God must have already had some change go on inside them by the Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible teaches that we are dead spiritually. It doesn't say that we're weak. It doesn't say that we're struggling and trying with all of our heart. But it says we are dead spiritually. And before I can ever know God or want to know him or want to glorify him or enjoy him or be in his presence, something has to happen to me that I cannot do myself. I have to be quickened, the old King James says. I have to be made alive by the Spirit of God. And that's not something I can engineer on my own. That is something God does. The natural mind is hostile. This is total inability, or what is often referred to as total depravity. It doesn't mean that every person is as bad as they could be, but it means that every person is as bad off as they can possibly be. It means that the effects of sin has touched every dimension and aspect of our nature. It affects our thinking. It affects our feelings. It affects our desires. It affects every single thing about us. And until God breaks through, we will have no breakthrough. This leads to the issue of predestination. It leads to the issue of election, and you cannot avoid it if you read the Apostle Paul. He says, the natural mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. It means that we aren't capable of seeking God. So anyone who does seek God has already been enabled by the Spirit. Paul put it in 2 Timothy 2, 25, God may perhaps grant them that they will repent and come to know the truth, showing that repentance and knowledge of the truth is something God must give to us. He must grant it. Jesus says the same when he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And he repeats that in John 6. I remember hearing R.C. Sproul say that preachers, we shouldn't command people to repent and believe and come to the gospel. He was debating a man one time. He says, no, you don't do that. He said, you woo people. R.C., who happened to know a little bit of Greek, said the Greek in that passage would be like dropping a bucket into a well and drawing water out of the well. He said, when I'm thirsty in the ancient Near East and I wanted to water the camels and take a drink myself, I wouldn't stand over the well and go, please come up and satisfy my thirst. I would drop a bucket in and draw the water out. And I want to tell you something. If you know Jesus today and you are alive spiritually, you only have one person to thank. And that is the Holy Spirit of God who has quickened you, has made you alive, has drawn you to himself. So, we're almost through but not yet. There are two ways this verse can affect you. You can concentrate on the life stories of others and let it upset you because you try to figure out what God is doing with all the people who aren't seeking him, or you can concentrate only on your life story and know yours. Then you can rejoice to see that God is not trying to hide from you, that all the things you know about him are the things he has granted. This should humble us for who sees anything different in you. What did you have that you did not receive? It should be comforting to us. It should give us confidence and hope that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. 
Paul tells us that we're saved by sheer grace. We didn't contribute anything to it. This should lead us to sing, Lord, tis not that I did choose thee, for the Lord that could not be, this heart would still refuse thee, hast thou not chosen me? My heart owns none before thee, for thy rich grace I thir thirst, this knowing if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. Paul says in verse 12, no one does good and that our deeds are worthless. You know what the word for worthless is? Sour milk. <laughs> Sour milk. It used to be my pleasure, displeasure to go to seminary all week, come home, get up the next morning to eat cereal, and find out that there either was no milk or the milk that was there was sour. Now, if you like sour milk, you're another kind of creature. I don't know who you are. But I want to tell you, that's what Paul says our good works are. Apart from Christ, our good works, our goodness is worthless. It's like sour milk, completely useless. Again, people would say, Paul, you've gone too far. I know many people who aren't Christians who do a lot of good to the society and world we live in and to people around them. But this is to miss the focus of Paul's passage. He is talking about our relationship to God and whether our good deeds can rectify that relationship. And he is showing us that in an ultimate sense, our good deeds cannot get us saved at all. It's important to compare Paul's statement with Isaiah 64, 6, that all our righteousness are as filthy rags. Paul also, again, in Philippians 3, at a greater length, he literally says that when he looks at his best achievements, I consider them but dung, scuba, that I may win Christ. Paul going too far again for you? How can he say that no one does anything good? The Bible sees a good deed as both good in form and in motive. For example, if you help a little old lady across the street, that is good form. It conforms to God's will for our behavior. But if you never help anyone across the street except rich old ladies that you're trying to milk for money, then obviously that deed arises from a selfish heart and selfish motives. Now, when it comes to God, no one does good deeds because a good deed is done only for God's glory and not our own. There is no virtue signaling in God's world. The following quote shows how important to do good deeds until the gospel changes your heart. Once in a kingdom, long ago, a gardener grew a huge carrot and decided to give it to his prince because he loved his sovereign. When he gave it, the prince discerned that love and devotion and that he expected nothing in return. So the gardener turned to leave and he said, Here, my son, I want to give you some of my land so that you can produce an even greater crop. It is yours. And the gardener went home rejoicing. A nobleman heard about it, and he thought, if that is what the prince gives as a response to the gift of a carrot, what would he give to me if I gave him one of my fine horses? So the nobleman came and presented the prince with a fine steed as a gift, but the prince discerned his heart, and he said, you expect me to give you as I did to the gardener? I will not. You are very different. The gardener gave me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. 
Now notice what he teaches. If you know God loves you in Christ, that there's nothing you can do but accept his perfect righteousness, then you can feed the hungry, visit the sick, and clothe the naked all for God. But if you think you're going to get salvation in return for these good deeds, it is really yourself that you are feeding, yourself you are clothing, yourself you are visiting. In other words, good deeds are not truly done for God and that they are not truly good unless a person has accepted and grasped the reality of the gospel. You expect me to... Uh, in other words, good deeds are not truly done for God and thus are not truly good unless a person has accepted and grasped the gospel, all the deeds done in the natural and normal way in hopes that they will win and procure God's favor and blessing are worthless. And they lead either to smugness, anger, or self-pity. It is necessary to understand this if you're going to be a Christian at all. The main difference between a real Christian and a religious person is not so much their attitude toward their sin, but their attitude toward their good deeds. And this is where I close. The Pharisees were very impressed with their own good deeds. We must be sure to admit that many good deeds done by non-Christians, which are most certainly good in a relative sense, they are not done in overt or most certainly selfish ways. And God gives many non-Christians wonderful talents and wisdom and goodness to make the world a more livable place. But Christians appreciate and value the world and the people being created in God's image. This passage is not saying that no one but Christians have anything about them that's noble, wonderful, or beautiful, or great. It is saying no one does anything savingly good meriting salvation before God. When you get to verse 18, Paul can sum up everything he has said. He said, sin makes us misunderstand and run from God. And so Paul begins to talk about the fear of God. So how do we get ourselves out of this dilemma? If that's what our hearts are, and that's the way we think and operate, what happens? How do we get it out? Well, there's only one hope. Somebody has to do the good works for us. Somebody has to obey God's law for us. Somebody has to pay our debts. Somebody has to be willing to substitute for us. And so God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son into the world to be incarnate, to be enfleshed as it were. And that he gave this son for the purpose of accomplishing for us that which we could never do in ourselves because we're powerless, we're broken, we're weak, we're sinful. We mess up everything we put our hands to in reference to our relationship with God. But Jesus came and he executed perfect, sterling, pristine righteousness on my behalf. He lived the life I should have lived and could not live because I am a warped sinner. And he died the death that I should have died. He took upon himself my sin and God's wrath was outpoured upon him and he paid the debt of my sin. 
And the father turned his back on his own son on the cross and Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the truth of the gospel is he forsook him so he could receive you. He delivered his son up unto death so that he could save you. See what Paul's point is? All of us are under sin and we need a Savior. And his name is Jesus. Have you stopped trying to save yourself? Have you decided by the help of the Holy Spirit that you no longer want to live separated from and cut off from the presence of God? And do you sense in you the work of the Holy Spirit drawing you to the Savior? Today is the day that you say, I abandon all hope in trying to save myself either through being good or developing my own lifestyle and trying to be successful at that. Rather, I repent of any reason I ever did anything good. And I return to the Savior and I trust Him. And I rest my life upon Him. I cast myself upon His mercy. And God will say to you, there is therefore now no condemnation to the ones who are in Christ Jesus. Do you know that? I pray that you do. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that the gospel is real. That's why it's good news because we are in a mess. We are cut off from you. And unless somebody saves us, we're in such deep trouble. I pray that your mercy would fall upon every listener. And I pray that you would give us the heart and desire to close with Christ. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as people who are beyond grateful for what you have done to make us your own. And we pray that this money you give today or we give today would be used by you to accomplish your purposes and glorify your name. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.